0: Why is uncertainty so important to politics today? From finance and technology to climate change, pandemics, migration and security, what the future holds feels increasingly uncertain and demands alternative approaches. If hopes of much-needed progressive transformations are to be realised, then current blinkered understandings of uncertainty need to be met with renewed democratic struggle. In this episode of Between the Lines, co-authors Ian Skeones from IDS Sabir Ahmed Kaka from Goldsmiths and Andy Sterling from the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex explore the challenges of social transformations through the lens of uncertainty, drawing on themes from their book, The Politics of Uncertainty, Challenges of Transformation.
1: So uncertainty is what we're debating here today and perhaps uncertainty is the signifier of our times. I guess discussing a book on the politics of uncertainty in the midst of a global pandemic is perhaps appropriate. So I wanna give a little bit of background on the, on the book. Um, the book emerged out of work within the ESRC step center at Sussex. And it's always been a theme of our work, working on the intersections of science, technology, environmental change uh, in and around the politics of sustainability. But we wanted to expand that conversation and hear from some others who are engaging with uncertain conditions in very diverse settings. So last year, we assembled an absolutely amazing group working on everything from banking and finance to insurance, to critical infrastructure, to technology regulation, cities, climate change, natural disasters, yes, pandemics, as well as crime and security, migration and religion. And the 12 chapters of the book reflect this diversity, each examining what uncertainty means and how it creates in many different ways, a new politics. And then of course, as we were finalizing the book earlier this year, the COVID-19 pandemic began to unfold and all of the the themes of the book came into, into really sharp relief. So for example, the limits of predictive modeling, the importance of diverse and contested knowledges, about disease in this case, the relevance of collective mutual responses, patterns of structural inequality and that mean uncertainties experienced very differently by people in different places. So what then is uncertainty that we discuss in the book? Basically, it's when we don't know the outcomes of future events. Um, and importantly, and this is a there's a key difference, it's distinct from risk, where outcomes are assumed to be able to be predicted or are calculable in some way. And uncertainty is, is fundamentally about the relationship between knowledge and politics, but is also more than this, as the chapters in the book show. It has material and practical dimensions. And indeed, while understanding how uncertainty is experienced and felt through emotions they also become embodied too in people's everyday lives. And the the chapters of the book explain and explore different dimensions of uncertainty. But it's that long recognized distinction between risk and uncertainty that we think is particularly important because if we think if if we know about the future, when of course we often don't, then systems of techno-managerial control can end up dominating. And this, as we see in many of the cases in the chapters, can just mislead or be actually plain dangerous. If, by contrast, the future is more uncertain, more open-ended, more indeterminate, more contingent, then a very different type of politics emerges. And this is really what we want to discuss in this podcast. So Moving to Andy first, perhaps you can expand a little bit on this central discussion of the book and explore a bit how a focus on uncertainty and its different dimensions challenges our perspectives on these hallowed um, assumptions around expertise about modernity and progress and in turn can confront
2: power. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Ian. There's no no small challenge there in that collection. No, but, uh, <laughs> so, no I I love the, I love the banging on about this kind of thing. So um, no. Thank you. And I, I just to pick up from how you introduced it there. Um, you know, we live in a world where this these imaginations of control are already rife. You know, they are obviously feature strongly as you outlined in the COVID story so far. But they're already there. They are. They're, they're all around, especially in the institutions and practices and cultures of globalization. So despite the differences in the way these things play out around the world, they really are quite pervasive. This imagination of control. And I say imagination, not just to fit another big word in, but because it's the actuality of control is not the issue here. It's the sheer eccentricity of how a lot of these institutions, whether they're involved in governing technological risks or public health or striving to address problems like climate change, the imagination of control is incredible, literally incredible, actually, because, for instance, it does as you say. It says that all that exists in the world are magnitudes of things that could be good or bad and then probabilities. The WTO, World Trade Organization, insists that countries base their regulation of technology on that. And if they don't, they're they're susceptible to international legal action. So it's very serious, this idea that you take uncertainties and you pretend that they're risks. And what the COVID-19 pandemic has done in different ways around the world and to different degrees, which is quite interesting, is completely punctured that myth, not only for pointy-headed characters who look at it all the time, but for society at large, it's seen through the mask. If you like, you could say modernity has lost its clothes. It's an emperor who is seen without its clothes of pretense at control for all the reasons you you outlined and this is not unique to the pandemic it happens periodically with, with the forced humility of crises like you know like ac- major accidents of technology like chernobyl or fukushima or other diseases like uh, mad cow disease did this in its day and of course the financial crash as we discuss in the book mm-hmm. uh, did this too so it's not unique but it is massive in its scale and i think it's a pivotal moment then now to realize something not just about uncertainty about in, in specific ways, but about the world we live in and the pressures of modernity and globalization to produce these institutions. That I don't want to put it too strongly but basically delusional about the levels of control, it is possible to exercise in the world. Um, so I, I'd say that's a kind of starting point. Absolutely.
1: Well, yeah, and, uh, and a challenge to all of us. So severe, do, do you, do you take this argument? I mean, are there is this a fundamental challenge to modernity as it were with a capital M or are there other modernities out there that actually may be seen through this perspective?
3: Yeah, I mean, thank you even for for pointing that question. I think um, how I look at uncertainty is particularly in the latter sense, um, especially as I come to it from the angle of Global South um, or the tradition of work done in Global South urbanism, where we look at cities as places that are inherently uncertain. And we don't talk about sort of, you know, um, trying to preemptively sort of control them from a techno-managerial sort of governmental sense, but rather look at the fact that these uncertainties, you know, take them as something that are taken for granted within the city by governors as well as residents, as something that they sort of um, try to live with and manage as opposed to control. So I study security related uncertainty in one of the fastest growing mega cities of the world, Karachi. And I call this kind of uncertainty as something that's ordinary, particularly because it's not an outcome of any spectacular one off occurrence, um, like a terrorist attack, which might have to be imagined and then counted counteractively, sort of uh, preemptively stopped. But um, it's instead an outcome of the routinization of insecurity, a situation where conflict um, in the shape of either violent clashes amongst ethno criminal political groups or state forces becomes um, sort of intermittently normal. So this kind of insecurity follows particular patterns, which over the year people are able to identify and predict, but also through their experience, they know how to think about the futures of these potential clashes and then live in the present um, based on their past experiences. So this kind of uncertainty is also governed at different scales. While government actors and official institutions are tasked to ensure security, individuals also take matters in their own hands. In the context of Karachi, with... Uh, without effective governmental guidance or trustworthy leadership people look at ongoing uncertainty through processes of um, sort of changing the ways in which they live while they might sort of bunker down in securitized fortified enclaved spaces but they also sort of think of this uncertainty as something that's alive sort of that 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 had emerged in their movement in the city in, in their everyday life and to navigate it they heavily rely on social networks they anticipate really stay updated, for example. So, you know, friends, family, colleagues, they discuss encounters with um, and and their knowledge of insecure events um, in a daily sort of, you know, in their daily conversations and with passion in the way that I guess people might discuss the weather over here, which is equally unpredictable, (laughs) but you you would know what um, sort of gray skies mean, right? So the TV is always on at people's homes. They're tuned into the radio when they're driving. They religiously follow news and information on the city's halat, as they would say, or condition, how we would say it in English. And they share it with each other in person or through social media in the form of stories or rumors or images or forwards. You know there are many Facebook groups that have now emerged with that specific title "Halat Updates," which means the updates on the condition of the city. Um, they have more than forty thousand, more than sometimes even a million follow- uh, sort of followers as well. You know, there's also um, Twitter feeds that people would follow and, you know, every business or organization in Karachi would have a security wing, which would share information, much like our organizations are secure, sharing information on COVID-19 and what that means for our daily practice or weekly practice. And these kinds of forwards are then, or emails are then shared and forwarded amongst friends. So that's how information becomes a critical resource for people for staying safe in um, a city that is determined by its um. Uncertainty you could say for the majority this kind of socially organized and collaboratively managed form of um, uncertainty governance works really well I mean they're successfully staying safe in their daily lives and they can continue to go about um, their daily businesses without interruption. But at the same time, in my research, I highlight this as well as in the chapter, you know, through through other people's work, we also talk about how it's very important to think about precarity and how these forms of governing uncertainty at, at the very social level need some kind of regulatory framework so that the precarious, so the most precarious aren't made more precarious, you could say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's several reasons for this. I mean, firstly, in my own research, I find that in some cases, information is used to achieve political ends it's often very unruly in how it spreads and the promise of its circulation is sometimes used by political actors to create particular situations. You know, this reproduces insecurity in many contexts where a fake news might be leaked about a clash between two criminal networks just to kind of encourage further criminal actions that state forces can go in and then capture them. So, you know, that kind of sense of what's out there, you know, also generates suspicion and mistrust with information which is problematic in its own way, because people are open to entertaining wild conspiracy theories about the origin and sources of information, its accuracy, its truth. You know, they second guess the authenticity of everything they hear. And, you know, that's dangerous as we know it in the current context, when people start questioning the whole science of vaccinations, perhaps, or even, you know, staying safe. So, you know, this this sense of what can be trusted or information as something that is Seen as you know, with caution or taken with caution is is problematic. Um, and secondly, information is often used as a political resource. Um, having insider insights or access to particular information sources allows people to achieve personal or group advantages at the detriment of others. I mean we could always say that this is a negative and some social actors um, are able to reconfigure and reshape their own social positions positively or favorably if if they have been precarious otherwise but it's just something to signal to show that you know that there's something about how information can be used you know to improve or, or or further marginalize particular people
1: really interesting i mean a number of things you've you've just said you know in a very different context resonate with work that we've been doing in pastoral areas, um, livestock keeping areas in in, uh, Asia and Africa and indeed in Europe, where this idea of of this sort of regularised, routinized, living with uncertainty, even living from uncertainty, actually, uncertainty almost as an opportunity for for livelihoods um, is is a recurrent feature of what pastoralists always do and always have done. and i think this is a, a this is something that we often forget in you know the 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 settings where things have been organized stabilized managed provided with this particular form of modernity and progress that we call development sometimes yet actually these uh, many people are often doing this incredibly well Um, using networks of information, as you say, using uh, social relations and so on very much to ride the wave of a whole series of uncertainties which, which intersect, whether that's drought or snowfall or floods in pastoral areas or indeed conflict. Um, but a very different type of conflict to the sorts that you're descri- describing for Karachi. So I think there's, a, there's an alternative vision you an know, alternative experience of uncertainty that many people in the world face on a day-to-day basis. And th- there are a number of nice cases in the book, actually. Uh, one on climate change by Laila Mehta and colleagues which, which looked at uh, you know, uncertainties as, as experienced by people both in dry lands and flood-prone areas in India. Uh, and the work by Melissa Leach and colleagues on, on how disease diseases, particularly Ebola, was experienced in, in West Africa, very much part and parcel of this embedded, culturally informed form of, of, of responding. Yeah. But I wanted to, you know, I mean, that's fine. That's a sort of ethnographic description. But I wanted to raise this question that you've hinted at there. You know, we can sometimes glorify and reify indigenous local coping systems I mean we can marvel at them and we do but there is a real danger I think that you've hinted at of ignoring as it were the structural features that create vulnerabilities in the first place so I don't know whether either of you want to come back into as it were the the sort of structural politics that creates uncertainties in the first place and why we need to address that maybe Andy
2: yeah, sure i could say something on it i'm sure that has got uh, an angle on it too um so yeah linking this to the stuff i was saying at the beginning because i think it's really important yeah there is a danger of romanticizing especially on the part of critical academics like myself you know and and, and, and the step center uh, you know we have to watch out for every, every approach has pathologies and we have to watch out of that romanticization problem but i think the cr- crucial thing to this is in the politics of knowledge which is central to the book that politics is not just present in a world where knowledge then informs it, politics is present inside knowledge, in the way knowledge is shaped, and in particular, that knowledge is co-produced with the institutions and the social structures and power relations that, that are all around it. Uh, in other words, the content of knowledge reflects the outside world, in whatever context that is. That doesn't mean anything goes, it just means the kinds of societies that are... that, are, uh, and, and that the knowledge production is embedded in will affect the the kind of knowledge that that gets. So for instance, in societies where there are all kinds of hierarchical relations, I mean, I think uh, Sabia's reference to ordinary uncertainty is really crucial. Mm. That word is really crucial, it does crucial work, because the kinds of practices that Sabia talked about there really nicely, collaborative, mutualistic, horizontal, are lateral, They're, they're practices of a part of the world i mean obviously the world is, is complicated There's all kinds of things going on those are forms of horizontal engagement and the kinds of things i was talking about are these great vertical structures of globalization governance of science and technology so the contrast there and you can you don't, don't overdo this is one between very hierarchical structures within which knowledge is going to you can expect it to show all these categorical levels and pretense of the kind i pointed up to about risk and so on so i think the humility and hubris, there's a sort of hubris about these institutions that requires them to deny uncertainty. So without romanticizing then pr- precarity, certainly, and, and we always need to remember the realities of precarity as something that, you know, steps out of this kind of debate. But without romanticizing that, it's possible to see that the kinds of humility that are engendered, or put it another way, the, the inhibitions on hubris that that forces are a quality that stops a kind of pathology that you can see in the institutions. I was talking about which are not lacking in hu- They don't have too much humility. They're, they're really quite hubristic. So my point is that Relations of equality and humility are important to seeing the realities of uncertainty Uncertainty is there whether we see it or not um, But if we are in institutions that need to depend on pretending that it's under control then we won't see it in ways that people who are not embedded in their daily lives in those institutions will see more easily.
1: Indeed, and I think the, those pathologies run right through uh, development practice across the so-called developing world. I mean, in the sort of area of, of developing cities, you know, in rapidly urbanizing settings, I mean, how do you see that that uh, tension, Sabia, I mean, that you know, is there, an? It, does this suggest a different way of doing development? If you bring in these concepts of, of ordinary uncertainties and the and, and the patterns that people are, are doing without reifying it in a sort of naive form of participation, mm. um, you know, h- how does that work? Because you were beginning to talk also about the need for regulatory uh, frameworks and, and state involvement. We can't, you know, this isn't a matter of just leaving people it to themselves, but it's also providing forms of protection that allow them to, to navigate uncertainties in their own terms.
3: Absolutely. I think in terms of what this means for development and how development can be done um, better, you know, in contexts of uncertainty, I think it's important to also consider what kind of messages are given about sort of legitimate forms of knowledge and, and sort of the authority they're in. So, for example, scientific knowledge um, and, you know, the knowledge of experts on security versus the lived and experiential knowledge that people might have, um, you know, embedded within cultural, you know, ideas of collaboration or, you know, also contest or conflict. I mean, these are two very different knowledges, but that's not to say that they can't be, they can't be, um, that they don't interconnect, because how is scientific knowledge formed, perhaps? Is it, you know, what's the methods of its formation? I mean, I guess... Um, I'm, I'm skeptical in saying that there's a huge divergence between the two because um, I do think that it's a multi sort of, you know, even all kinds of knowledge we see, um, you know, it, it connects to what's happening on the ground. And similarly, what's happening on the ground, it does take inference from what, you know, scientists are thinking at the moment or what experts are thinking at the moment. I think for me that the, the problem or the problematic around um, sort of this information exchange is in its particularities um, of the exchange itself as well as the you know, institutions that are supposed to be vested with some form of credibility in communicating it, but who have lost that credibility. So it's not about who produces that knowledge and how is it exchanged, but rather sort of how equal are those structures of exchange and how, how credible is an institution that needs to mediate that sort of exchange as well. So for example, um, you know in, in Karachi, things like access to electricity, smartphones, internet, phone balance, these are all significant for receiving and sharing information, as well as ability, obviously, and the system may magnify precarities exist, you know, along the lines of say, you know, class, gender, ability, disability, age, access, um, like sort of geographic position as well. So how how is it that sort of information exchange can be better structured through sort of creating some kind of universal equality along those lines um, for access to information? And similarly, um, if we think that, you know, if we think that we shouldn't, I mean, these are innovative and resilient ways of um, survival, but we shouldn't really think of them as um, or glorify them as perfect responses, because there, there has to be some level of trustworthiness or accountability, you know, in, in the government, government um, or governmental institutions that communicate these information, because why is it that people are prone to uh, listening to uh, conspiracy theories, or why is it that they mistrust or they're suspicious of particular sort of outcomes? What is it about particular institutions that you know needs to be improved? Um, so yeah, like some some kind of accountability, um, so some kind of trustworthiness, um, some kind of you know mitigating the numerous uh, different sort of false uh, informations that might people might be acting on. Um, which might then reproduce particular forms of uncertainty. There needs to be some kind of regulation you know, around that. And perhaps that's what we need to think about when we think of governing uncertainty. Um, you know, remember that um, knowledge and its production is, you know, is, is multi-scale and knowledge is co-produced between sort of, you know, the lived and experienced as well as the scientific, but you know, what's the best form of, um, of tying it all together?
1: Well, there's a question for you, Andy. What's the best way of tying it all together? I mean, what well, does it, what is a new politics of uncertainty, yes, and that's what we were arguing yes. in the book, yes. that actually all these challenges that we've just been talking about leads us towards thinking about a new politics, and you you both been hinting at this already, yeah. um, this sort of horizontalness, the exchange, this yeah. this need for trust, the need for accountability, but you know, it, it's easy to call a book the new, polit- the new politics of, of uncertainty or um but what is it
2: yeah yeah well i mean it's a 64 million dollar question it's a very precise number to use in this context but um <laughs> uh, and i think we actually call it towards a new Was it, a? it was a yeah i think yeah, so but it's kind of crucial because no, it is called really, the
1: politics of uncertainty oh dear we have to go back on that one that's embarrassing <laughs>
2: uh yeah uh, there's a slight uh, contradiction in our thing there but um no, I mean, all the things that Sevilla just said there, I mean, especially picking up the challenge of uh, you, you know, transforming development, just transforming our understandings of what progress more widely is in the world, social progress. Um, I think that all the things that Sevilla just spoke about nicely there are all part of it. There are all kinds of things one can do at whatever scale. This is the idea that things are neatly scaled in micro, meso, uh, macro is itself a product of a hierarchical world without seeing the connections between them. So I, I think they have real... Uh, potency, the kinds of practices that uh, Sabia talked about, but there's also, there are dangers, especially in agencies, for instance, agencies concerned with development, but also agencies concerned with it, or including non-governmental uh, agencies concerned with other kinds of practice. So we see the world, again, because knowledge is co-produced with our own circumstances, as inviting certain kinds of foci for knowledge, certain kinds of practice. So let's respond to uncertainty by bringing a new kind of organizational procedure, or a new convene, a new kind of space at our level, or have a new sectoral strategy, or have, for instance, more equality in our own practice, you know, like information. And I think there's a, a complementary message for me, which of course we weren't able to address fully in the book in relation to COVID because it hadn't occurred, but One of the things people are saying at the moment is far from being conclusively uh, determined and we have to wait, but those societies that have good grounds to be seen as more equal in various meanings of that term, and there's no one meaning of it. there's, There's big differences in the world in how COVID has been handled. And it's not over yet, but there are differences. And I would be very interested in seeing exploration of the degree to which general social conditions of social equality in the most general of terms, across different cultural parameters, gender, of course, this features prominently in commentary on the countries that have handled COVID relatively well, but in in racial terms, in uh, class terms, those kinds of societies are looking a little bit like circumstantially. There's a hypothesis there. And so in that sense, then, some of the big agendas, which always appear too big for academics and certainly for agencies to take on, decolonization, emancipation, democratic struggle, then become seen as a crucial to the answer to the practical question what can we do about uncertainty because those kinds of things look like they feature as part of what it takes to make a society more robust both in its knowledge in the kinds of the, the reality the realism of the knowledge it has it doesn't pretend to itself so much because it doesn't need to because it's not sustaining these hierarchies but also when uncertainties do impinge as they always will those kinds of societies have more capabilities, more capacities to respond to the consequences. So, you know, it's a hypothesis, but I think it's quite a compelling one to complement then the more specific contained kinds of interventions that are also really important.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, um, it's, it's, it's again to reiterate that point where, where we made about sort of should we reify this, this notion that the best way of managing uncertainty is through sociality and at the sort of very micro level, um, or, you know, it's, it's it's important not to sort of celebrate that as the best way, because sometimes that le- leads a policy response of disinvesting in public resources, because, hey, people are good enough at managing them themselves, so maybe we don't need to govern anything. And then again, that has its own politics, like, you know, we, we look at about um, a dis- disinvestment of public services and how that affects different individuals differently. It, it re, um, magnifies existing uh, inequalities. So the message really is that we need more public support to sort of, uh, you know, in, in, in sociality. So rather than saying there's a, re- there's a need to re- uh, to retreat public resources, we're saying we need more public resources to invest in something that works, and that is sociality. So, you know, foster a more egalitarian society, you know, make sure that your um, sort of programs um, of social support are, are sort of healthy. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to reduce inequality so that more and more people are able to sort of, you know, meet um, in the civics uh, together, you know, collab- be collaborative, um, reduce other kinds of um, difference in society, along race or gender or sexuality or caste or ethnicity or whatever that is, so you can build healthier communities, because in the end, Um, When it comes to crises that is otherwise unmanageable by governments, we see that it is, in effect, communities that are best at responding and first at responding. They're the most agile, um, they're the most knowledgeable, um, and they're also the most invested. So maybe there's a message there rather than uh, say that, hey, you know, this is something that works and we don't need government. We need government to ensure that these communities can be healthy, can be equal, can be gentle. Mm
1: -hmm. That's a, and that's a really important point. I think it's it's both and, but then but then the role of the state and the role of as it were, science, technology, and the rest is not to impose a a particular rigid vision, nor to impose a particular set of, you know, risk criteria to which uh, agencies then respond. It's a much more enabling. Uh, approach that allows this this uh, this alternative to flourish, but it You know that's, that's a big thing. That's an easy thing to say, but it's a big thing to do. I mean, because you know the hi- historical structures of state, science-led development-oriented institutions are exactly the opposite of doing that. They are you know deeply imbued with a particular um, style of, of control. Techno-managerial control, as we talked about it before, and unlearning that and producing new forms of accountability, new trust relations, uh, is a big is a big challenge. But I mean, I agree with you; it is the challenge.
3: I mean, it's it's interesting when you say that because it also makes me feel like what is a better um, reason for social transformation than uncertainty? Um, and we see that maybe we can turn the politics of uncertainty on its head, where, for example, because I work on a tradition of security governance, we see in the post 9-11 world how uncertainty was able to produce a particular sort of political environment that was so oppressive in its sort of global um you know, in its form of global, uh, uh, how do you say action or vile you know, the, uh, unpalatable violent global action, the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, and all of this was made palatable because of the risk or the uncertainty of the next terrorist attack. So, you know, uncertainty itself has been mobilized as a political tool to restructure sort of a collective ethics for the worse. So perhaps, <laughs> Let's just be hopeful and say we can, we can hijack uncertainty in the same way and kind of produce a better collective social ethics as a form of emergency.
1: Absolutely, because the, the the sort of idea of uncertainty and risk as as closing down, as as providing the basis for emergency style interventions, we see again and again, whether in, in security discourses or indeed in climate discourses. Perhaps you know the biggest challenge humanity faces, um, but actually bringing uncertainty into that debate uh, could revolutionise it, and that's why the subtitle of the book is called challenges of transformation, I mean, as an opening up uh, to an alternative way of of thinking. So, Andy, I mean, let's conclude now. But I mean, you know, we've been, uh, So, Sabaya's nicely offered a sort of more hopeful inversion of the debate. I mean, does uncertainty offer hope or despair?
2: Well, I I think, again, that phrase uh, Sabia came up with, uh, let's try to hope is really crucial, because there's really good, re- I mean, let's do that anyway, uh, because it's a much more pleasant uh, kind of thing to be engaged in. But also, I think analytically, that makes sense, because the fearfulness, I think the flip side or a, co- a corollary of the uh, controlling imagination that I was referring to at the beginning, and we've been unpicking in practical ways throughout this discussion, which is dominant? It's not that that control cannot have a role, as the point about the state, for instance. This is not to deny roles for hierarchy, for um, managerial interventions. It's just that they are. So, it's like they're metastasized in the in the world we're in at the moment, globalizing in a very overbearing form. So to restore that balance, one needs to emphasize a counterpoint, and I think it's no coincidence these sort of authoritarian populism that's growing up around the world in this remarkably uh, coordinated, if you like, fashion, is a response, that fear-based, the fear, it's a fear-driven uh, response to, to these kinds of uh, changes that are taking place in the world of the erosion of life ways in various different ways. And it's being channeled in a certain kind of way because the institute, progressive institutions, are themselves engendering that fear. Fear of this or fear of that is taken, uh, whether it be climate change, whether it be economic uh, slumps, Fear is the disciplining device. And so let's hope, not just because it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a very important part of just being human, but because actually it's a form of resistance. Hope is a far more unruly, far more subversive idiom than fear. Um, and I think it's part of, the, part of the key to the kinds of transformations that we're calling for in the book, and we touch on this in the end of our efforts there, That actually, let's let's let a thousand hopes bloom. Let's see what kinds of institutions can be based around hope rather than these kinds of fears. And we can see a different kind of more mutualistic, more egalitarian, more relational rather than a categorical world coming out of it. It'll never be one or the other. But because the imbalances are so stark now, that really giving that more momentum, I think, can really help make us more robust in the face of practical challenges like COVID-19.
1: Absolutely. I think that's an excellent point to, to end on. And thank you all for that discussion. And maybe the lens of uncertainty can engender that hope and unravel some of the negative effects of, uh, of top down techno managerial impositions that we've seen so often across experiences of development, north and south. So thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Follow us on Twitter at ids underscore UK or visit ids.ac.uk.